listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said, we are not bodies with souls. We are souls with bodies. In Galatians 3.1, Paul said, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Here the apostle Paul reminding them when he presented the gospel to them, how he probably acted out what happened to Jesus, portrayed before them all that was involved in crucifixion so that they could be rich at the expense of Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 53, look with me at these potent words that were written hundreds and hundreds of years, probably about 700 years before the arrival of Jesus Christ. Look with me at Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. You know, in the Bible, the number one sickness from God's perspective is sin. It's by the affliction of Jesus, by the cross of Jesus Christ, his crucifixion, that you and I are healed of our sin, that our sins are removed. And the Galatians had forgotten that. Look with me at Psalm 22, the 22nd Psalm, beginning in verse 14. Again, hundreds of years before the arrival of Jesus Christ, this Psalm was written, a Psalm of David. And it strikingly portrays the experience of somebody who's crucified. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws or to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. That's a reference to Gentiles, non-Jews. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22, 14 through 18, the depiction of a crucified person, somebody who would go and hang on a cross hundreds of years before Jesus comes onto the scene, and Paul is telling the Galatians, who's tricked you? Who's cast a spell on you? Who's hit you over the head? How is it that you have forgotten the centrality of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and what that means for you? Same can be true for you and me today. We need to perpetually, continually be reminded of the importance of what happened in real time, at a real place, on a real cross, with a real person, 
God in the flesh. The Galatians started off with Jesus accepting Jesus, the crucifixion as being central, the crucifixion as being everything for the forgiveness of sins, but then they began to add some things to the cross. You know, anybody who's added something to the cross, added something to the work that Jesus did on the cross, you know, Jesus' last three words, it is finished. And after he said those words, he didn't wink. There's nothing that you and I can add to the finished work of Jesus Christ, but yet we do it all the time. We do it all the time. We're a very syncretistic society. We add things to the gospel that should not be added. We dilute the cross of Jesus Christ. We diminish the sacrifice of Jesus by thinking there's surely something we must do. It's too mind-blowing to comprehend that Jesus has done it all. And when we get to Luke chapter 14, we see that Jesus is on his way to what had not yet been realized. He's on his way to the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. He's on his way intentionally to endure the punishment that brought you and me peace. Look with me at Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Some things in life are impossible, and here's one of them. It is not possible to be a disciple of Jesus Christ unless we fulfill what Jesus requires. Now, wait a second. The message of Jesus today has been reduced to love, 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 and we have recreated God in our own image, a love that's not divine love. It's human love. Finite understanding isn't the message of Jesus' love. Well, here Jesus is demonstrating such an incredible love, such an incomprehensible love, that he's helping us understand that by comparison, even love for our own families, even love for our own wives, the ones that we stand up in front of a bunch of people and promise until death do we part to love, honor, and cherish, by comparison, our love for Jesus there is no comparison. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and debate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, 
Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What is Jesus saying to us in this passage? What was Jesus saying to the great crowds who followed him? Here's the imagery of what was taking place. Jesus, with great intentionality, great purposefulness, he is now making his way to Jerusalem. He's setting his face toward Jerusalem. He knows full well exactly what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Isaiah 53 will be fulfilled. John chapter 10 tells us very clearly that no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus was not murdered. He gave his life voluntarily. Jesus is on his way intentionally to Jerusalem to go to the cross, to volunteer himself on the cross, and now great crowds are following him, not knowing exactly, not knowing with certainty what Jesus knew with certainty, and he turns to the crowd, and he begins to address them. And he begins to speak about hatred, something we don't typically associate with Jesus, but it comes out of Jesus' mouth, not mine. And of all the things that Jesus says we should hate, of all the things that Jesus says that they should hate, It seems at first to be a strange dichotomy because Jesus has at the epicenter of his hatred the very institution that he created, marriage and family, wives, husbands and children, brothers and sisters, Is Jesus beginning to become delusional here? Is the thought of bearing the weight of the world on his shoulders literally overcoming him where he begins to say, you must hate this one who's spoken so much about love, who's associated and affiliated with so much love? Why is it that Jesus is talking now about hatred? Some of us would be happy to hear This would be an out for us who have grown up in dysfunctional families. You know someone who's grown up in a dysfunctional family? I mean, if we want to include the in-laws in this, this would be great news. A great excuse to spiritualize my hatred for my brother or my sister or my brother-in-law or my mother-in-law. Great opportunity for me to use Scripture to substantiate myself, but what Jesus is actually saying What Jesus is actually doing must be taken in context of Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Look with me at Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. One of the Ten Commandments here, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 and 3, reference this. Look with me at Ephesians 6. Verse 2, honor your father. There we go. Thank you. Verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Significant. Children being told to obey their parents, honor your father and mother. 
quoting Exodus chapter 20, 12. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Obedience to God always brings blessing. Obedience always brings blessing. Disobedience always brings discipline. So how do we reconcile these teachings from the Old Testament and the New Testament with Jesus' words here? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What Jesus is doing here is setting a comparison for us. Compared to me, there should be no others. Your love for me, your dedication to me should be so resolved, so settled, that nothing and nobody comes close to your love for Jesus. He's looking at the crowds and beginning to thin them out, beginning to help them understand that discipleship following Jesus is not possible unless by comparison you are willing and take your steps toward hating everything else by comparison. Now, we are to honor our mothers and our fathers. We are to love our brothers and our sisters, and certainly our wives and our husbands. We are to love them and to love them passionately up until the point where such love might put us in jeopardy and might jeopardize our love for the master who gave those people to us in the first place. Parents, one of the hardest things to do is to give up your child to the will of God. But you must. Wives, one of the most difficult things you have, I know because I spend so much time in my office talking with people, I have done it through years, and I know because my wife has to live with me. One of the most difficult things you are tasked to do, but you must do it, is surrender your husband to the will of God and leave what you cannot change before the very throne of God, depending upon him to bring the change that you wish some of us have tried to bring about that change through mere human means. We cannot change other people. Only God can change other people. Same thing for husbands with wives, for our children and for our parents. By comparison, there is no comparison. Our love for God, our love for Jesus. Look at what Jesus is doing here. He's placing himself on equal footing with God. It's so obvious that we miss it. Jesus is either promoting idolatry by telling people to worship him with all of their lives, or he again is hitting the nail right on the head. See, there are some things that are not possible in life, and this is one of them. It's not possible to be a real disciple of Jesus Christ. It's something else, some other relationship, some other possession, as he talks later on in this passage, has your affections and has your 
fascination, your preoccupation more than Jesus. It's just not possible. Now, we have ourselves convinced all day long. We deceive ourselves. The culture assists us in that. The devil and his evil spirits assist in that. My flesh, me, myself, and I does a wonderful job of convincing me that I can rationalize obedience and surrender to other things while maintaining my obedience and surrender to Jesus, but that's not true. In foreign countries, in animistic cultures where there are spiritists and the missionaries go in, you've heard the stories, I'm sure. The missionaries go into these animistic societies when in 1989 I flew into Africa for the first time in a small Cessna aircraft into this airstrip, and as the plane was landing, out of the woodwork, literally out of the forest, these people came in tattered clothing, if any at all. Being familiar with worshiping ancestors, being scared of evil spirits, they were spiritists. And I was going to join the other missionaries who were there to preach the gospel, to set them free, to talk about the cross, to preach Christ crucified, to share the gospel, lead people to Christ, and assist the missionaries. One of the most difficult things we had to do, and one of the most difficult things a missionary has to do, is to help the nationals, help the animists, help those who are involved in spirit worship leave entirely Their perspective of God, which is limited, their fear of the evil spirits of their ancestors and demons, to leave all of that and just simply to accept Jesus Christ, not to add Jesus to their animistic ways. It's called syncretism. We didn't want no missionary in their right mind simply wants the people of that country to add Jesus to what they're already doing with their false religious practices, but why do we allow it in the United States of America? Why do we allow that in the Western world? It's okay to add Jesus to all my stuff. Jesus isn't really asking me, by comparison, to hate every other relationship that would compete with loyalty to Jesus. Why is that acceptable? It is not acceptable to Jesus. It's still syncretism. By comparison, nothing, nobody should ever and ever has the permission of Jesus, the right to compete with loyalty to Jesus. Everything else, everybody else by comparison pales. She'll have no other gods before me. And Jesus is putting himself on equal footing with Yahweh. Because the word became flesh and lived among us for a while. They were beholding the glory of God as he turned and looked to the crowds. They didn't realize they were looking at the King of kings and Lord of lords who was intentionally bringing that challenge to them, who's intentionally bringing that challenge to us. Whether you're listening by podcast or whether we're listening right now, the question is, are we listening? See, one of the things that we can deal with is leaving things leaving family, especially when it's clear that they are causing us to make a choice, whether it's Jesus or family. But no matter where you go, there you are. The thing that nails every one of us to the cross if we're willing to take it up 
It's not a relationship with somebody else, not a family member, brother, sister, wife. The real issue is Jesus puts the, us all, every single one of us, on a level playing field when he says, you've got to hate even your own life. You've got to hate even your own life. Otherwise, it's not possible to be my disciple. When Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple, these words would have caused people who were paying attention in that crowd to gasp. The cross. When somebody went to the cross, it meant farewell forever. No coming back. Everybody knew that to go to the cross meant you were not coming back. And Jesus living to die intentionally, knowing that his life, his ministry, all of his miracles will culminate at the cross and the greatest miracle of all, victory over death, the resurrection, so that the punishment that brought us peace was upon his shoulders. What Jesus did was for you and for me, but it's in vain if we don't respond in faith. It's this body that I carry around that gives me problems. Jesus is not talking about a poor self-image. He's talking about a a healthy self-image which puts Jesus first. You can spend all of your life trying to develop a healthy self-image, but if your self-image is not based upon the image of Jesus Christ, it's an exercise in futility. By comparison, you've got to hate yourself, your own aspirations, your own dreams, me, myself, and I, that difficulty that you have that is to try to get your own body, your own brain, your own heart to submit to the will and the purpose of God. Haven't you found that that's so doggone difficult at times? Jesus says it's not possible to be my disciple unless you hate your own life. Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. You know, we want other people to follow Jesus. The question is, are we giving them a Jesus that we're following? Or have we just added Jesus to all our stuff? Just added the cross, asked Jesus to bless what I've got. No, Jesus doesn't want your stuff. Jesus doesn't need your stuff, and he doesn't need mine. What Jesus needs is you. Not some of you, not most of you. It's that 1% we hold back from Jesus that often derails us. By comparison, we've got to hate our own lives. That's what a disciple does. They love Jesus so much that all of their possessions, all of their goals, all of their dreams, all of their aspirations, everything they own, everything they do with their time points to the cross, the cross of Jesus. 
And it requires, it's necessary for a personal death to take place, a personal renunciation. You know, when Jesus gets here in verse 33 and he says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce, the word renounce, all that he has cannot be my disciple. It's not that Jesus wants you to be a pauper. There are plenty of people who are poor and don't have any possessions whatsoever. That does not mean that they're automatically by default now following Jesus. There are many people who are not only poor, but greatly in debt with credit card debt and other types of debt that's not healthy. That does not mean that by default that makes you a follower of Jesus. It's not the lack of possessions that makes you rich in Christ. It's your affection for Jesus that makes you rich in Christ. The word here that's used, renounce. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce means to say farewell to. Anyone who is not willing to say farewell to all that he has is incapable of being my disciple. And this is really the problem in our country, in a land of milk and plenty, with so many churches, so many new churches being planted, so many established churches. You see, it doesn't matter how many churches we plant. It doesn't matter how many churches we have. It doesn't matter how many people profess to be following Christ. In fact, at this point in Jesus' life and ministry, a great crowd was, quote-unquote, following Jesus. But most of them were not willing to follow Jesus. Jesus doesn't need masses of people clamoring around him. He needs people who will go into your mission field, the place where he's called you, into your marriage, into your relationships. Die to yourself. Take up your cross. Bear your cross, which is not your health problem It's not your financial problem. We have confused. I'm just bearing my cross. I'm just carrying my cross. No, it is the entire death to all of your aspirations, all of the me, myself, and I endeavors that our flesh encourages, the world encourages, our culture encourages, everything and anything that competes with loyalty to Jesus Christ needs to get nailed to the cross. And unless and until you are intentional about that happening, it will not happen. If Jesus was not intentional to go to Jerusalem to be rejected by the chief priests, the scribes, the leaders of Israel, he wouldn't have been nailed to the cross. If Jesus was not intentional waiting in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he could have walked a couple of hundred yards up over the top of the hill, I was there, and go into the wilderness area, if he was not intentional to wait there, he wouldn't have been to, he wouldn't have gotten to the cross. And the same is true in your life and mine. If we are little Christs, which is what the word Christian means, we must be intentional about our own crucifixion, not to save ourselves because we can't, but to participate in the great exchange, Christ's life for you, for the forgiveness of your sin. Not some of them, but all of them that results in such tremendous freedom and a burden lifted off of us that now we can give our life for Christ by giving up everything and anything that competes for the affection that is only deserving of God.
So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce, say farewell to all that he has, cannot be my disciple. You know, Jesus ends this section by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You might be a wealthy person. You might be a poor person. You might have many relationships. You might have few relationships. You might be somebody who's in debt. You might be somebody who has plenty. For him who has ears to hear, let him hear. How does this apply to your life? What is it that threatens your sincere and pure devotion to Jesus that you don't hate by comparison? Some of us are more concerned about our reputation at work, more concerned about our reputation in the workplace, more concerned about our reputation in the community than we are concerned about the reputation of Jesus Christ. For him who has ears to hear, let him hear. What is it? Who is it? What is it, who is it that you love more than you should, that you need to hate in comparison to your love for Jesus? Notice what Jesus says here. He uses an interesting phrase here that makes us scratch our heads because we don't understand a thing or two about salt mining or selling. We don't understand what they understood in the first century Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? What? What does this have to do with salt? It has everything to do with salt. Salt can lose its saltiness. Salt cannot even be salty in the first place. There are two ways that salt in the first century, even today, in rustic means of mining and selling salt, salt is not necessarily salty. If the way it's mined is not mined accurately and correctly there in the Dead Sea where there was not just salt, there were other minerals as well. The ones who were mining the salt from the slab had to be careful that other minerals, other impurities were not mixed in with the salt. They had to be cut out so that what would happen? The more impurities you have mixed in with the salt, the less salty the salt actually is. And so the miner would have to be, the miners would have to be very careful, very deliberate to make sure that although this might look like salt, it might not actually be salt. And a good salt miner would separate the other minerals, the extraneous things, the relationships in life, the worries and the cares of the world. Strip it all down. Get all of that garbage away from what it means to really be a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's not just be people who are among the throngs and the crowds. Let's be people who really, by comparison, put no other gods before us and bear our own cross. That's one of the ways that salt can lose its saltiness depending on impurities being allowed to continue during the mining process. The other thing is with a seedy salt salesman. You'll know if you've encountered one when you get your bag of salt home when you put it on that delicious, juicy steak that you barbecued and grilled just perfectly. So you've got the crisscross marks on that steak and you put some of that salt that you got from your seedy salt salesman onto it and you take your first bite and you say, hmm, 
doesn't seem salty enough at all. And you put more until you could dump the whole bag on it. See what a seedy salt salesman does is he mixes intentionally some impurities in with that salt to dilute it so that he can make the real pure salt that he has stretch a little bit further. He's a master at syncretism, a master at mixing other things in with the salt so that it loses its saltiness. You are not to do that in your devotion to Jesus Christ, and neither am I. We are not to allow anything to mix in with pure and sincere devotion to Jesus Christ. And the only way that salt can be made salty again, it can happen. The only way that salt can be made salty again is if you get intentional to remove all of the impurities. If anyone does not deny himself, take up his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.